Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. Good morning. Anybody else feel like we need to sing Jesus Loves the Little Children real quick before we get started this morning? Don't know if you caught the end of that, but that's a tough psalm to read. It's a tough psalm to listen to. I want to just mention uh, before I begin, uh, I am the young adult pastor at this church. For those that don't know, my name is Tyler Stewart, and uh, three years this month, my wife and I and our family uh, have, has been here, and there's a lot of stuff on Saturday mornings that we're usually doing for the young adults, so even my platform duties are a little less than some of the other colleagues on this staff, and even when I'm here, sometimes I'm running in and out of the doors to get back to preparing for our gathering with our young adults or to get back out to the Brown Bag Project, our service project, where we help serve those in the community, the homeless in the community. But uh, since I don't have many opportunities to stand before the congregation as a whole, I just want to reiterate and let uh, this body know how privileged I feel to be a part of the staff at this church, to serve in this capacity at a university setting, and how full my heart is as I minister to our young people. So with that being said, we are in the midst of a sermon series called More Than Words. And within the Psalms, we find this spectrum of human emotion, both great elation and great joy and great sorrow and great lament. And so we started this series, Pastor Joey started with a song of praise. And then last week, our beloved senior pastor, Pastor Randy, led us through a song of yearning. But today, we want to listen to a song of disorientation. Life can be disorienting, can't it? I'm looking for a few nods. Yes. Yeah? Okay, good. Life can be very disorienting. Life is brutally marked by seasons and experiences of incoherence and disequilibrium. Life often, you can almost bank on it, right? Life often doesn't go as planned, does it? Life is often about the disorienting experience of shattered expectations. This year has been the year of Disney for my family. Because of the generosity of some good friends, we decided to get season passes this year. And so Vonette, my wife, and I um, bought our passes. Both she and I had never been to Disneyland, never been to Disney World. We're Northwest, oh, well, I'm a Northwest transplant, so I've never done the SoCal thing, gone to Disneyland. So we finally got passes. And of course, everything is new for our four-year-old son and our two-year-old daughter. And so when we go to Disneyland, we're just like, a big pack of kids, you know, all four of us. Everything is magical for Judah and Saheli because it's fresh, it's new, it's, it's first time. Vonette, every time we go, she has her mini ears on. She's laughing and smiling like she's a kid all over again. 
And then, of course, uh, I'm crying like a young child every time I go because everything is so expensive. (laughs) (laughs) I told the congregation this morning I had to pay $3 for a banana. (laughs) That's not right. I'm finally getting around to paying $3 for a bottle of water, but not a banana. No, $18 for a bubble blower. Really? Bubble blower, $18? Of course, I've got two kids, so times all that by two, you know. But my kids, they love seeing all the Disney characters. They know them all now, Mickey and Minnie. They want to get pictures and autographs with Pluto and Donald. But in the not-too-distant future, Judah, my son, and Saheli, my daughter, are going to have that reality check, that moment where they realize that Mickey isn't actually a real giant, well-dressed mouse, but that it's actually just a regular person in a costume. And so whether it's the experience of finding out that Mickey's not real or Santa Claus or that it's your parents putting money under your pillow and not the tooth fairy, these are very early examples of life's disorientation. I'll never forget sitting on the steps of my family's back porch when my father returned home with hot tears streaming down his face. My parents were in the process of purchasing their first home, which was a big deal. And uh, he had just been let go uh, because of a company downsize. And so I remember that experience because that was the first time I had ever seen my father cry. And up to that point in life, I had actually grown up believing that my father had never cried in his life. And so it was a strength of courage. Uh, It was a badge of strength and courage for me as I viewed him and I idolized him because of that. And so when I saw the, the tears streaming down his cheeks, it was a very disorienting experience. And life is full of disorienting experiences. Maybe you know the disorientation of divorce. And you never thought that it would come to that. Maybe you're familiar with the disorienting reality of loneliness. You're living in the latter years of your life and you have kids and you have grandkids and maybe you even have great grandkids, but everyone is just so busy. Maybe you had a tough semester or maybe you had to go through a tough class or maybe it was just one tough exam but it sent you on this downward spiral of disorientation and you've yet to find your footing again. Maybe it's just the disorientation of unfulfillment, low-level satisfaction in your career or in your relationship or just with life in general. Maybe your disorientation has to do with your doubt. You're not sure what you believe anymore or that you even believe any of it. In our psalm this morning, we find God's people in a state of disorientation. And if you listen closely, you hear the poetic voice of powerless exiles. The city and the temple in Jerusalem has been destroyed. And these Judean exiles have been forced by imperial policy to relocate into Babylon. 
and Zion or Jerusalem, which was the center of life, now laid waste and was in ruins. They no longer had a place of worship. They no longer had a place to carry out the rituals of atonement and to receive forgiveness. Can you imagine living with a worldview where you had to enact certain rituals in order to receive the forgiveness of God and now that place no longer existed? The kind of guilt and weight that might be on your own shoulders? Maybe some of us in the sanctuary this morning can still relate to that reality. But here the temple and the city have been destroyed. They have no leader to bring them justice. And in the midst of the overwhelming chaos, all that is left is the raw wound of grief. And this song, this song artfully and brutally brings their grief and hostility to expression. The psalm begins... With verses one and two, by the waters of Babylon, we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there, we hung up our lyres. Then it says in verse three, for there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, sing us one of those songs of Zion. So here they are. They've been uprooted from their homes. They're exiles in a foreign land. They can only sit in silence and mourn with tears. Their musical instruments have been hung up on the trees along irrigation canals between the Tigris and the Euphrates. When taunted by their captors to sing their happy songs, these exiles refuse. You see, because the songs of Zion were songs about how Jerusalem was impenetrable about how their God was a mighty deliverer, and yet here they were, exiles in Babylon. And this crisis of disorientation, this upheaval of the way of life for God's people and God's community provoked more uh, than just an anxiety about life. It cut to the very core of their faith and their identity and who they were and who God was. I spent some time this week reading stories about the Nazi death camps where similar tactics were actually used. So some of the guards would actually force Jewish prisoners to sing anti-Semitic songs, sometimes while they were dancing, forced to dance. Other times they'd have them lay in coffins. At one particular camp, prisoners were forced to sing an ironic song with the chorus, Our Life is happy here. We receive good food. How happy we are in the green forest where we stay. One former prisoner in that camp who survived believed, and I quote, that the music and the dancing had one purpose, to kill any thought of liberation that the prisoners might have. So the tormenting and the egging on of singing songs became a weapon of warfare. And I think that's what's happening. I think that's what we see playing out in Psalm 137. The Babylonian guards, they're taunting. They're tormenting God's people. Sing those songs about your mighty God and that great city as a means of breaking them down, killing their hope 
for liberation. And when you're going through a disorienting season of life or when you're going through a disorienting experience in a relationship or in the workplace or in your faith or with your identity, there are certain tormentors in our lives that can wreak havoc. And just like that prisoner said, they can leave you feeling hopeless, tormentors like fear, taunting you to believe that the worst possible scenario will actually become reality. Or how about the tormentor of self-hatred? You'll never be good enough. You'll never be pretty enough. You'll never be smart enough. You'll always come up short. You'll always be less than. You're not deserving. Or how about the tormentor of loneliness? Nobody is ever going to actually know who you truly are or even care to. You're isolated because something's wrong with you. And these songs play over and over deep inside of us and they rob us of life and they rob us of hope and they rob us of joy and they rob us of our freedom. And in the midst of the disorientation and the torment, it says in verse four, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? How can we? This is an impossibility. We can't do it. And I'll never forget when my wife and I lost our firstborn son, Caden, to premature birth and the complications that were tied to his prematurity. It was one of the most disorienting experiences that I believe life can bring. And as you know, many of you know, mothers that give birth in a hospital should never go home without a child. And parents are not supposed to bury their children. And so during one of the darkest periods of my life, I remember stepping into a church months later as a visitor and the worship team was leading, and the church was singing these songs of praise. And all I can recall is how utterly impossible it was to sing one word, one line, one lyric of those songs. And the truth is, is that sometimes we, as the church, we get stuck in a rut where we only sing happy songs. And I, gave, and I was loving on the choir uh, in first service because they took on a hard one singing a song that isn't so easy to sing. But sometimes the church, we get in the rut of singing happy songs even in the face of raw reality, which is not what the Bible does. And the Psalms are primary proof. It's not all just songs of happy and joy and goodness. And I believe that we need more songs and we need more sermons and we need more prayers and we need more artistic expression of the disorientation and the doubt and the anger and the lament as a part of the fabric of the church life because it's true to real life and it's true to the human experience. We need more of that in the church. You all are quiet this morning. The church ought to be the safest place 
where people can bring their disorientation, their confusion, their laments, their shattered expectations, and our shattered lives. This ought to be the one place they can come and they can find identification and they can find instruction and they can find support. I think one of the major reasons that young people are leaving the church is because the church isn't speaking to the disorientation of life. And so when they experience the disorientation of their faith, for example, which many of you in this room are familiar with because it's a healthy part of one's spiritual journey, they don't think to find refuge and instruction in the church because we don't even talk about it. We don't even sing about it. We're not even owning it ourselves. The church is where everyone is well put together. The church is where everyone believes. And it's where we sing our happy songs. But I believe that God is calling the church to be a place of refuge for the disoriented and the lost. And not just the lost out there, but even the lost inside the home to use the house, to use the parable of Jesus. In an age of postmodernism and skepticism and antagonism toward the Christian faith, I believe that God is calling the church to acknowledge the disorientation and the doubt, to work through it with the body of Christ, to equip people how to give an answer for the faith and the hope that is within them, and to send and empower people into culture and into every sector of society to be salt and light in a world that's increasingly divide, in, in division and confusion and brokenness. So in verse four, we hit rock bottom. How can we even sing to God in a foreign land? But then there's a shift in verses five and six. Listen, if I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. You see, these are resilient words. This is an act of resistance. For the exiles, remembering Zion means faithfulness to God's place and to God's purposes despite what's happening to them. They may not be able to sing in a foreign land, but amid their disorientation and their tormentors' tactics to kill their hope for liberation, they must remember as an act of resistance and preservation. I can't sing, God, but I will remember. I will remember. Dr. Viktor Frankl, psychotherapist, university professor, and prolific author, most notably known probably for his book, The Search for Meaning, was himself a prisoner in the Nazi death camps. And in his writing about his experience in those concentration camps, Dr. Frankl comes to the conclusion comes to this conclusion, that no matter how terrible the conditions of psychic and physical stress are in one's life, everything can be taken from a person but one thing. To choose one's attitude in any given circumstance. To choose one's attitude 
in any given circumstance. And so here are God's people tormented by their captors to sing songs as a means of breaking them down and their capacity to hope to wipe out, to annihilate and kill any hope of liberation. But Frankel says, no, that's the one thing they cannot take from you unless you let them. You already are liberated. It is the last of your human freedoms to choose your attitude, to choose to remember, to hope in the face of disorientation and despair. And while remembering Zion, they're remembering God, exercising their freedom to hope and to trust in God's presence and to to trust in his purposes despite their situation. The psalm ends in verses 7 through 9 with a request for God to now remember them and their suffering. So in the first four verses, it expresses their pain as grief. And in the last three verses, it expresses that grief as anger and outrage. The Babylonian conquest of Judah certainly involved the deaths of many Judeans. I don't know if you caught it, so I'll read it again for you. Quickly, 7 through 9, remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall be he who takes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. So the Babylonian conquest of Judah certainly involved the death of many Judeans, including small children, which represent the future of a people. So verse 9 is suggesting that the Babylonians deserve the same. Those who have deprived others of a future deserve no future themselves. So it definitely shocks our sensibilities, doesn't it? Hearing those words in the pages of Scripture, this certainly isn't the ethical peak of Scripture Kill their babies is light years from love your enemies. This isn't the Sermon on the Mount, but it is Scripture. It is here. And Psalm 137 isn't just vigilante justice. The psalmist isn't rounding up his posse to go out and find infants to dash their heads on rocks. He's expressing his hatred to God. As Walter Brueggemann once said, sometimes maybe genuine forgiveness isn't possible until there's a genuine articulation of our hatred. And so there's something about this psalm that while raw and distasteful feels honest and true to life. You know, in the New Testament, there's another small band of a group of people that had a pretty disorienting experience Can you imagine how disorienting it would have been for the disciples to witness the swift downfall of their perceived Messiah? One minute they're arguing over who will be the greatest in Jesus' kingdom. The next minute Jesus is being betrayed with a kiss by Judas. The Roman guard takes Jesus captive and every last one of them scurries into the darkness, even those who said they'd lay down their life for him. Or what about the disorientation they would have experienced at the crucifixion? 
Jesus wasn't just falsely apprehended or unjustly tortured. He was condemned to die as as a criminal, murdered on the most painful instrument of death in the known world at that time. And as firsthand witnesses, you better believe the disciples were disoriented and lost and confused and in horror and numb. But if the disciples felt disoriented during Jesus' apprehension, and we certainly know the disciples would have been disoriented when they witnessed the crucifixion, how do you think they felt after his resurrection? Pretty disoriented? Yeah, I think so. The Bible actually uses words when the disciples first encounter Christ raised from the dead like startled, afraid, terrified, some doubted. In Luke 24, Cleopas and another person are walking on a road to the village of Emmaus. And while they're walking, Jesus gets on the road and begins walking with them. But the Bible says that they don't perceive that it's Christ. And so in their dialogue, in their disoriented dialogue, as they're walking along the road, Jesus wants to know what's the topic of conversation, which disorients them even further because how could anyone be talking about anything else at this time except for the prophet Jesus and the chief priests and the Pharisees' decision to put him to death, crucified on a cross, He was the one we had hoped would redeem Israel. Some of the women in our group even went to the tomb early in the morning and we followed after, but we could not see him. And Jesus responds. He says, look, you who have been so slow to believe, the prophets, wasn't it necessary for the Christ to suffer that he might enter his glory? And the Bible says, beginning with Moses and all the way through the prophets, he began to interpret the scriptures pertaining to himself. You see, often reorientation comes out of disorientation. Reorientation comes out of disorientation. So in the case of the disciples, the orientation was that they thought that God was going to rise a Messiah, a deliverer to power who would exercise authority and use force to end the oppression by the Roman Empire and reestablish Israel to its rightful place. That was their orientation. That's what they believed. But then they went through the disorientation of, their, of Jesus' apprehension and crucifixion and then even his resurrection. And it's not till after they've gone through the disorientation that the resurrected Christ can come back to the disoriented disciples and begin to show them the very same things that while he walked with him, he told them very plainly, I'm going to be delivered into the hands. I must suffer and die. I will raise again on the third day. I've told you this already. But now that you've been through the disorientation of life, now I'm going to come back and I'm going to reorient you and speak again to you the plan of salvation and the work of the Father so that you might see not only what my mission was and what I'm doing, but what I will do through you. Because not only was I called to do a work, but I have a calling on your life now. And it took the disorientation of your experience to get to the point where now you can hear what I'm telling you where now you can see when you were blind before. 
And so reorientation happens through disorientation. And Jesus shares with the disciples that God was not just doing a liberating work. God was not just doing a redeeming work for the Jews. God was redeeming and liberating the whole world. And there was a call in the life of the disciples to spread this gospel message to the ends of the earth. You see, we were all in exile. Sin had enslaved us and we were under its oppressive rule. The Bible says, but through suffering and death, Jesus brings us freedom and new life. Christ has redeemed us and delivered us from the bondage of sin, liberating us to love. Galatians 5.1 says that it was for freedom that Christ set us free. You see, Psalm 137 is about remembrance, and the Christian faith is about remembrance. God, for example, says, remember the Sabbath day, a memorial of my creative and redemptive work. Next week, we're celebrating communion, and Jesus says, when you eat the bread and you take the cup, you do this in remembrance of me. In remembering, there is hope, and we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You see, there's power. in rem Even when I can't sing, I can choose to remember. I don't know what kind of disorienting season of life or experiences you might be facing this morning. But the word of the Lord is it doesn't matter if it's a they or an it. Whatever your tormentors, a failing body, a failing business, a failing relationship, cannot take your freedom to remember, to choose life and hope as you anchor your life in the gospel truth of the risen Christ. Can you still remember in the midst of your disorientation, the presence and work of God, his promise over your life that he is with you, that even in your disorientation, God will do a work of reorientation on the other side. Remember that reorientation comes out of disorientation and that God, church, is not done with you yet. So be confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the, and until the day of Christ Jesus. Amen.